Thank you for listening to the Faith Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. Today's sermon for the 13th Sunday after Trinity, August 29, 2021, is preached by Pastor Jason Goodham. If you have questions or comments regarding today's message, please call the church office at 612-824-5527 or visit our website at faithlutheran-aflc.org. Good morning. Welcome to those of you who are visiting us this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I would at this time invite you to stand as I read the Old Testament lesson appointed for this Sunday. The sermon text is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and then verses 6 through 9. can be found on page 279 of your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Reading in Jesus' name, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and 6 through 9. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. And then down to verse 6. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and to your children's children. Heavenly Father, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray that this morning you would sanctify us in the truth, that you would convict us of sin in our lives where that is necessary, and that you would comfort and encourage us with the promises of your gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Humans are fundamentally selfish creatures. We see this on almost every level of human society. Now, on the one hand, I'm not saying anything bold with that statement. There's nothing should catch you as being out of left field when I tell you that humans are selfish. But think about it for a moment. Just dwell on it for a second. There is a reason that parents need to teach toddlers to share. We don't need to teach them to not share. Everyone is inclined to hoard what they have and to take what someone else has. We need to teach them to go against that grain. That's just a reflection of who we all are in our nature. On some level, we're selfish. And we're selfish because we're sinners. More on that in a moment. Now, everyone on earth, if they're being honest, is going to agree that humans are selfish. But where we run into conflict is that not everyone on earth agrees with what to do about it. Christians stand unique in the answer to this question. Every other world religion, from atheism to Zoroastrianism, teaches that it's up to us 
to do something about our selfishness, to rise above that default position of ours and to be better. And usually it involves canceling out our selfishness by doing good things. Christianity, however, says someone else must do something about our selfishness. That we, as sinners, are both unwilling and incapable at the core of it all to do anything to improve, improve upon this condition. And this is where, for Christians, the gospel comes in. But as odd as it may sound, I'm not here, at least at this moment, to talk about the gospel. I'm here to talk about the flip side of that reality for Christians. The uniqueness of Christianity declaring that we need something and someone outside of ourselves to save us also declares something to the world about our good works. And this adds uniqueness on top of uniqueness. The apex or climax of what the world misses about human selfishness is simply this. Humans are also incredibly selfish about our own good works. And we are selfish about our good works in two ways. We are selfish in that we want our good works to accomplish or at least contribute to our salvation. We've already more or less covered this with all the other world religions. But what works against us in this reality is that we're selfish about what good works we are willing to do and who we do them for. We want to do the good works we're especially good at or the good works that are easy or the good works that we declare have special value. And then we want to do good works only for people whom we determine are worthy of receiving our good works. But what this really does is bring us back to the first point. The problem with our selfishness about good works is ultimately that we want our good works to be for us and about us. If we selflessly help our neighbor by doing something that is an inconvenience to us, that involves self-sacrifice. What we want more than anything is recognition. We want credit. We want to come out of that situation looking good. But this, all of this really, stands in direct contrast to what the Old Testament lesson teaches us about good works. So, turning our eyes back to Deuteronomy 4 this morning, we're going to learn three important truths about good works. First, God gets to decide which works are good. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. In the opening two verses of the Old Testament lesson, there is a distinct trend that emerges. 
Listen to the statutes and rules that I am teaching you. You shall not add to the word that I command you. Keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Notice the emphasis there? When it comes to the law, when it comes to God's rules, when it comes to our good works, God determines what they are. God determines which works are good. Why is this the case? Because it all comes down to the purpose and nature of the law. Leviticus 19.2, I am fully convinced, is one of the most important Bible verses in all of the Old Testament and maybe in all of the Bible. And it simply says this, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. It is true that the purpose of the law is holiness. Or for our sakes this morning, just to bring things into proper perspective, the purpose of the law is to generate goodness, as long as we're speaking with good works in mind. But when we consider goodness and holiness, we must consider them from God's perspective. God's holiness, God's goodness is the standard. God commands us to be holy because He is holy. And then, with the law, by the commandments, God tells us how to be holy. We don't get to determine what counts as our good works because first, we are not holy because of our sin, but also because we are not God, because we're creatures. And these two realities is what makes the next truth about good works so interesting. Our good works have a missionary effect. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? The fascinating thing about our good works is that if they are indeed good, they will always draw people to the Lord. This is the second reason that holiness is so important to our good works. We've talked about God as the standard of holiness. Now we get to talk about the nature of holiness. Holiness at its core means to be set apart. God in his holiness is set apart over and above and apart from all of the other gods and all of the other world religions. First and most basically, he exists. My favorite line from Matt's sermon last week is the line about who the, the atheist, after he died, was no longer an atheist. It's very simple, right? God exists. And there's a reason that the psalm, among other places in Scripture, says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The height of all foolishness is to, design, to deny the existence of our creator God, who just by observing the world around us, speaks to us of his design and order 
in creation. If you follow scientific naturalism or scientific materialism to its logical conclusion, everything around us should be absolute chaos. The fact that when we talk about any biological thing that exists, whether a tree or a human or anything, and we use the word whatever system, your immune system, your skeleton system, the system by which a plant generates oxygen out of carbon dioxide. A system, an organized structure, speaks to us of the existence of God. Because all scientific materialism tells us, now, no, this isn't science, this is the worldview of scientific materialism, all that is capable of saying is everything happens by undirected, random processes. And here's the thing about chaos. Chaos never organizes itself. Let's go back to parenting one more time. Any of you who have been children or have had children can observe a dirty room does not clean itself. Doesn't happen. And if you were to say, use the forces of nature like the thunderstorm we had last night, and you were to open the front door of your house, the forces of nature would not help a dirty room clean itself. It would make it much worse. And so the primary nature of God, even revealed to us in the name he gave to Moses, I am who I am, speaks to us that God exists. And this alone separates him from any other God that is worshipped in any other religion. But we know more about God because he's revealed it to us. We know that God is good instead of petty. We know that God is perfect instead of magnifying human vices. And most importantly, as revealed here in Deuteronomy 4, we know that God is near us. He's right here and right now. We don't have to go on these vast and epic pilgrimages to discover something about the gods. We don't have to travel to the Himalayas in Nepal and find some Sherpa or guru meditating on the top of a mountain to reveal us the truth of creation. God is near us. And he is near us to the point that he has become one of us. That he's put on human flesh that he has walked among us in human history because he is near us. God is holy. He is entirely set apart and unique. And what this means is that the people of God likewise have been called from the very beginning to be set apart in their holiness just like God. And as we are set apart, others will take notice. Now, we also know that throughout human history, millennia upon millennia, that set-apartness, that holiness, and the notice the world takes often starts with and looks like persecution. We are often attacked 
because we are set apart, because we are unique, because we are different. And this is the influence and deception of Satan in the world. But also, and in addition to this, and often because of this persecution, our holiness, our set-apartness, our uniqueness will eventually draw people in because we are different. You can find many stories from the early Christian persecution in the Roman Empire who Christians in the gladiator arena, because they died well, people who watched this in the audience would turn to the Lord in faith. God, in His nearness and His goodness, can turn Christian persecution in a way that reaches hearts and minds. Our good works our following God's law, His rules, His statutes, His commandments, our refusal to be just like the world not only is a reflection of God's character and His holiness, it's also a reflection of God's design and order in creation. And this, I think, at the baseline is what is so appealing to the world around us. Our works of goodness, our good, because they're better. Not necessarily in a prosperous way, but Christian good works are better because they work better. Because they allow us to operate as God has designed. And operating according to God's design flowing from God's law, appeals and draws the world to Him that He might show Himself gracious and merciful. And so then, and finally, our good works are for our neighbor. Verse 8 here. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. The key to this third and final truth about good works is entirely wrapped up in the word righteous. One of the best ways to understand and define righteousness is to think about it as meaning rightly oriented. And this is exactly how we need to be thinking as we meditate on the purpose, value, and necessity of our good works. It's all about righteousness a matter of being rightly oriented in all aspects of our lives. And so first, as God's children, we are rightly oriented to God. And this says something about our good works. In fact, what it says about our good works as we are rightly oriented to God is that they don't matter at all. They don't count. They can't help us. But God's good work... God's work of redemption in Christ for you matters. Christ has obeyed the law for us. He has succeeded in every place where we have failed and sinned against God. And our failures to obey God's law have been punished on Christ as His failure. Our sins now belong to Jesus. 
in this way, by faith, because of Christ, thanks to the gracious will and work of God, we are declared by God himself to be righteous. But we also need to be righteous before our neighbor. And this is where our good works come in. We are rightly oriented to our neighbors as we love them and serve them in our vocations. And in loving and serving our neighbors, God is working through us to provide for them. And in loving and serving our neighbors with our good works, God uses this goodness, this righteousness, this being rightly oriented to draw our neighbors to himself so that they might have more opportunities to hear the gospel, more opportunities to repent of their sins, and more opportunities to come to God in faith and be declared, like us, righteous before God. And with all that said, there's just one more verse left for us to consider. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. I've used this quote from Luther a couple of times. I still don't know where it comes from. He might not have ever said it. And as always with Luther, if something good is a tribute to him and he didn't say it, well, then we just say he should have said it, right? But he said this as a pastor. I must always preach the gospel to my people because they are always forgetting it. In this last verse of our Old Testament lesson, there is a call and an invitation but more importantly, there is a command for us, the people of God, to be people of God's Word. In placing ourselves before and in the Word of God, we will continually be confronted with the reality of God's commandments and our own sinfulness. And this works by the Holy Spirit to drive us to repent of our sins. And in repenting of our sins, we will always, regularly, and continually be delivered the good news of the gospel, where God, in and by His Word, forgives our sins and saves us, repeatedly. And in being saved, we will be comforted as we pray to God, according to His Word, and as the gospel is applied to us in the sacraments. And in being comforted, we will be freed and encouraged to love our neighbors and our vocations. And that love is defined by the Word of God, especially in the Ten Commandments. And so, the cycle repeats itself over and over and over again in our lives as Christians. Moving from God's commandments in the law to God's declaration of forgiveness in the gospel, to God's invitation for us to be aware that He is near us in prayer, to the comfort of God's gospel in word and sacrament, and back to the law and vocation, over and over and over again. And this, God's word for us, is our wisdom 
and understanding. And this, God's word for us, is ultimately the antidote to our selfishness. And especially the antidote for our selfish good works. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.